uh, earlier discussion we talked about how the gardens as we experience them today are very much a 20th century experience, right? In starting in 1948, the Garden Club of Virginia um, begins to repurpose these spaces. Uh, but what's part and parcel of that are include almost all of these walls, right? So UVA's famous curvilinear walls, so the serpentine walls, um, almost all of them that you see are rebuilt between 40, 1948 and 1952, right? So, but they're there. We know that they're there archaeologically. We found the footprints of them, but these are not Jefferson's walls. And same shape. Same shape, curvilinear, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're not rebuilt. They're moved, right? The, these alleys are wider than the alleys would have been uh, because by the uh, 1948, 1952, what do you have? Yeah, automobiles, right? <laughs> and so yeah, they have to accommodate a different uh, mode of transportation. Uh, so in that, in that reimagining, you get the reconstruction of the walls, you get the installation of these beautiful gardens. Uh, but for us as scholars, we have to peel all of that back. And one of the important things that we've come to realize in the reimagining of these gardens is that these curvilinear walls, when they were first built, were not five feet tall, as they are today. They were eight feet tall. They were closer together and eight feet tall. How does that change your experience of these spaces? Claustrophobic, definitely. You can't see, right? So that as I, as a white student, I'm walking between the range where I live and eat, and I'm walking up to the lawn where I'm taking classes. This is the white uh, highway between those two zones. And these eight-foot walls separate me and my visibility from the laboring, again, of enslaved bodies, the signifiers of slavery that are, that's unfolding all the time in those yards. I think archaeology has been uh, key to understanding uh, research uh, in, in what I would call the, the primary functional spaces at the university. Um, uh, in the academical village, uh, the alleys uh, dead-ended or led into the courtyards, the spaces behind the pavilions. And those spaces and those alleys, the historic roads, have been used as utility corridors for 200 years now. When the academical village was first designed, uh, there was really no function assigned to those spaces at the end of the alley, at the ends of the alleys. Um, I think Jefferson uh, noted that perhaps a wood yard could be placed in that location, but really didn't give any guidelines, and, and, and uh, those spaces were left to the use of the occupants of the pavilions. Uh, so we find each occupant uh, using that space uh, based on their needs, and it was a space where African Americans, both free and enslaved uh, individuals, would have uh, utilized, uh, performed work activities, maybe tended uh, animals, uh, and um, it would have been a, a center of activity along with uh, the gardens as well, the adjacent garden spaces next to the pavilions. In addition to this robust database that uh, populates the Jewel website, we have also been building a digital model of the academical village, a digital model that's accurate to the inch. Um, but if you go to the Jewel website, and we've created little uh, videos, 
And so we've sort of taken a fake drone and flown it around a fake uh, digital space, and you can see how, how the space functions. But one of the purposes of that is for us to reconstruct these yards, to peel back all of the, the layers of the late 20th century and begin to use archaeological evidence and historical evidence to re, re, restructure, reconstruct what these spaces look like. One of the advantages of that is that we can make that digital model at 2 a.m., make it completely dark. We can put a light behind the window of every space occupied by a white person, turn all of those lights on, and that creates surveillance hot zones. So we can see in the landscape, because of the buildings and the walls and all the, th all the features that are there, where, if I'm an enslaved African American, where am I very easily seen, and where am I not seen? We have a landscape that is populated almost exclusively by late teen and early 20s empowered white men. Where, what kind of places are they coming from? They're coming primarily from plantations. How do they interact with enslaved people on their plantations? They presume mastery. These white men presume mastery. These enslaved people are actually not owned by students. The University of Virginia, in its uh, founding codes, actually forbids students from bringing their own enslaved people. So that 140, 100 and so, 140 so people that are here, a minority of them are owned by professors, but the majority of them are owned by hotel keepers. And so this is Hotel A, which is one of the six hotels. If the pavilions dominate the lawn, the six hotels pavilion, uh, dominate the two ranges. Those hotels are the dining halls and the provision of all domestic services for the student population. Every student is uh, a member of one of the six hotels. The hotels are subcontracted out by the university to hotel keepers. So the building is owned by the university, but the hotel keeper is not an employee of the university. The hotel keeper is a subcontractor to the university, which means that if the professors are a minority owner of the enslaved population, who's the majority owner? The hotel keepers. And so a huge cadre of enslaved people are living and operating out of these hotels to provide the daily services for students, which is blackening shoes, starting fires, providing a bucket of cold water, uh, weekly washing laundry, sweeping out the rooms. And so they have people who actually own them, who have given them tasks, and then they have a landscape filled with people who also feel perfectly free to give them tasks and responsibilities, even though they're not owned by that person. And so movement, navigating this landscape, is really important. Because these enslaved women, primarily, are doing their very best to avoid encountering the students. Because they've already got a full day. <laughs> right? They've already got a full day of tasks. Raising for us the question, what happens when they do encounter these students? Beatings and rape. And that's just a hard truth we have to come to grips with. It shows up in the records. And so moms raising children, some of those children, the product of rape, are laboring constantly 
to provide services for people who abuse them. And that's the whole of their life. They're desperately trying to build relationships with other enslaved people, build families, healthfully raise children, and make it to old age. And so the human experience here, this is brutal and it's dehumanizing. And so when we think about Sam the Carpenter or Lucy Cottrell, we have the critical responsibility to rehumanize these people and recognize the extraordinary pressures they were under, and the brutality and the violence that they survived in an effort to raise their children and to love. What does it look like to love in that kind of condition? <laughs>